What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Before the episode begins, the entire Burn It All Down team wants to send our thoughts and love to the Muslim community in the wake of the horrific massacre at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. We send our solidarity to all of the victims, survivors, and their families, and vow to continue to fight white supremacy in all of its violent forms. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need for sure, for sure. I am Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress, and I am thrilled this week to be joined by my colleagues and co-host, Shireen Ahmed, our fierce Canadian. How are you, Shireen? Good. Thanks, Linz. <laughs> Jessica Luther, back in the warmth in Austin, Texas. Hey, Jess. It's only somewhat warm, but it's definitely warmer okay. than New York. So, <laughs> and Brenda Elsie, the indomitable associate professor of history at Hofstra. Hey, Bren. Hey. Okay, so it's actually really tough to do this this week because I am not staring at your faces while we record. <laughs> so that makes me really sad. Last week, we had our first live show in New York City at Columbia, and that was an absolutely incredible experience. I just wanted to thank everyone who came out and everyone who sent us notes about the live show. We were just... It was a dream come true. We couldn't have imagined it going any better. And we were just, we're just so proud. I'm still kind of just beaming. It still feels a little bit like it was a dream. But this week, we're back to regularly scheduled programming, all staring at our computers as we do this <laughs> in our different parts of the country and continent, I should say. But this week, we're going to be talking about this absurd college admission scandal, which has really enveloped many athletic departments across the country. We're also going to discuss an old faithful topic, racism in sports, with a special focus on fans in the wake of the Russell Westbrook and Utah Jazz incident. Finally, I interviewed Katie Sowers, an assistant coach with the San Francisco 49ers, to get a little bit about her backstory and about being a woman literally on the sidelines in the NFL. So that was a thrilling conversation that I think you're all really going to enjoy. Okay, first though, did we all see... <laughs> Not only the Odell Beckham trade, which I have to say that my one of my best friends is a Giants fan, and I just called him up laughing for like five minutes straight <laughs> because it is just such an absurd trade. <laughs> like he answered the phone and I just laughed. Uh, sorry, Adam. But did you all see what the journalist, I believe her name was Kim, came out and said about Odell? Did you see this, Jess? Yes. So it's Kimberly Jones of the NFL Network and... It's beautiful. And if you want to find this video of her talking about Odell Beckham on NFL Network and the trade, you just have to go to Odell Beckham Jr.'s Twitter feed and you'll find it there because he retweeted it. And so Kimberly Jones, I guess she was a beat reporter, worked alongside Odell Beckham for a long while and does this very heartfelt 
goodbye to him and wishing him well and at the Browns and, you know, it gets emotional. She talks about what a nice man he is when she had a huge medical scare. He showed up for her, all this sort of stuff. And he retweeted it and he wrote, Kim, I can't thank you enough for what you've done for me in my career, the side combos, the real life combos. I love you so much. Always in your corner and rooting for you. We're blessed to still have you in this world. And PS smile to saying a goodbye. My phone will always work for you. There's so many exclamation points. It's beautiful. I love everything about it. It's just this really sweet exchange. And it speaks to exactly what Kimberly Jones is getting at in her message about like how wrong the media often is about Odell Beckham. And I just loved it. I just, it just made my heart feel very full. It was so sweet. <laughs> Shireen, did you see this? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate it and echo everything just that. And it also showed to the way that how he treats her with so much respect and professionalism. And I think this goes to show also how it can be done. Like for an example, we look and we often on this show burn everything that's crappy and how, you know, sports journalists are treated, uh, women sports journalists are treated. And this is a very great example and from a playbook on how to actually do it and be kind to each other. Like that's really, really kind and respectful. I mean, I love Odell Beckham Jr. I'm all for, I'm just wondering, you know, post-trade, will he do another video with it, like in him dirty dancing kind of thing? Like <laughs> that scene, like I still love that scene. Like I think he's also very self-deprecating and very right. human. I love, I love that. I still think about that. It's part of like, you know, one of the videos I watch Eli um, you know, for self-care. <laughs> so yeah, it's really wonderful. Brenda, how, uh, how are the- things in New York without Odell? Odell's so Odell's now going to be um, the Cleveland Browns. And let's be honest, the New York Giants did not really get much in return for him. <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm not a big Giants fan. I will say that New York seems a lot emptier without all of you. Oh, it does. Um, So, you know, I mean, I don't I don't think the New York sports scene is very celebrity driven, you know, even maybe more than performance. So I don't think it's reeling. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's probably fair. Although I do just want to say... I've always noticed that Odell has such a close relationship with the report, NFL reporter for ESPN, Justina Anderson, who we've talked about on this show before. You know, she's reported a lot on him. They did a big interview. And, it, you know, what? it just like that combined with this Kim Kimberly Jones story just really makes me think that he really respects female reporters, which is, you know, he's certainly not the only one, but it's it's pretty. We love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we love that here. Jess? Lindsay, I have one quick question for you. Does this mean that the Browns are going to be good? Yes. Yes. Okay. Baker Mayfield. Okay, we prepare for that. Yeah. Okay. Everyone, the Cleveland Browns are going to be legitimately good this year. So that's a thing. And you know what? I'm all for it. Let's do this. Okay, so this is one of the more absurd sports stories we've had in a while, which is really saying something. (laughs) Brenda, Professor Elsie, can you take us through what we learned about college admissions and sports and all this stuff this week? Well, as as a lot of people wrote this week, I'm not sure that those of us who follow sports and college learned very much that was new. But about 50 rich people, very wealthy people, were arrested this week by the FBI. And this had to do with a fraudulent scheme with test scores and admissions and faking athletic participation. 
and even bribing some coaches to get their non-athletic and apparently non-academic children spots um, in in the universities that they wanted. And you you all can talk if I've missed anything, but the sports are um, water polo, tennis. <laughs> We're laughing because there's a Photoshop thing we can talk about with the child. Do you know where that was maybe the most blatant? Tennis, sailing, rowing, volleyball, and soccer. USC is the most sort of implicated here in this, especially Donna Heinel, the senior administrator who had overseen admissions for athletes. I would just like to take a moment to put a little bit of a different angle on it that I haven't seen out there. And, and okay, so let's just think for a minute. A place like Stanford University's list price will cost a family $69,000 per year, okay? So that's $300,000 for a BA. So it's already not fair, right? None, none of it's fair. And, and so it's all about status because these families are wealthy enough to give substantial bribes already, And this really makes me sad. And yes, it's a terrible irony that lucrative sports programs are successful on the backs of unpaid students of color, specifically ironic given the reaction of wealthy white people to affirmative action as being, you know, non-fair admissions. But one just last thing that I didn't see covered, and it veers a bit away from sports, but I think it's central to understanding this. Part of the reason that higher education has become so expensive is the tremendous growth of administration and people looking at college as an experience that we're supposed to provide for their children, a bridge to adulthood, rather than something you go to as an adult. And this is, I understand administrators are necessary, but they're very unchecked right now. And it has devalued the education. It starts with faculty. It starts with making faculty labor more contingent and lower paid in this very moment when people are paying more. And so it's devaluing the education and the shamaturism has everything to do with that. It's a central part, but it's not the only part. And I think we just need to come back when we talk about student athletes to understand that it's part of this bigger problem where colleges and higher education has been seen as providing consumers instead of educating students. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jess? Yeah, those are wonderful points, Bryn. And there's so much to say about this. It actually derailed my Tuesday <laughs> in a way that I wasn't expecting because <laughs> uh, I, yes. I couldn't stop reading it. Like It's both not surprising at all and also you want someone to make a movie out of it because it's just so wild in a lot of ways, even if it's not surprising. I don't know how to put those two things together. Uh, One thing that I wanted to talk about on this podcast, and I hinted at it a little bit. I wrote a piece for NBC Think. I'm interested in the fact that it's these particular sports. We're all, I mean, it's not basketball and football. And that was clear from the jump. And, you know, I wrote a little little bit about this. Like there's such intense scrutiny on basketball and football that you're never going to be able to eke someone in like there's too much people pay too much attention to it because of all of the reasons that we talk about on the show so we have all these smaller sports and Bren's right like I think it was crew where they like literally had kids sit in boats and they took pictures of them and then they like not even boats the rowers in the gym like the air (laughs) you know those like rowing machines in the gym that's what they took a photo of 
And then like soccer, they were photoshopping faces onto people's bodies. And it's interesting to me. So when I heard crew, the first thing that it made me think of was last year, I want to say it was the University of Washington. I apologize, just to look that up before. I want to say it was in University of Washington got in trouble because the local media reported that they were using crew to pad Title IX numbers. So they were saying that there were way more women doing crew than were actually doing crew in order to say that they were meeting their Title IX obligations of fair and equal opportunities for women athletes at their school. And that was actually like the first thing that I thought that these, that, you know, there's, there's obviously all these issues with how much we don't pay attention to these sports, but also like, this is the other way that we see it. Just, I don't know, there's just so many levels here of all the things wrong with what we do pay attention to in college sports and what we don't. And I think it in some way gets back to what Brenda's talking about, like that these are so far away from being about education anymore. Like we have to keep saying on the show over and over again, these are educators that are hired to be coaches at these schools. (laughs) Like we have to constantly remind ourselves that this is about education. Shireen? Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on this sort of like, some other aspects that I sort of wanted to talk about in addition to it being about as Brenda had said about administration that's like shady and corrupt we'd also need to talk about and this is something just wrote about in her piece for it was just about how it puts scrutiny on youth of color when it really shouldn't and I mean this is something that I think about the affirmative action and people are criticizing that and it's constantly criticized, et cetera, and how kids don't get to make it because they don't have the money. We know that university and college programs on higher education, so to speak, it's, it is a business. It's a not, it's, it's not a not-for-profit organization. They're businesses. And the rhetoric around, or sorry, the narrative being spun around the kids whose parents did this. I mean, I've heard people actually say, well, it's not the kid's fault. Like, for example, Lori Lachlan, uh, formerly of Full House or now of Fuller House, her daughter had a deal with Sephora. Her daughter that she, I, I can't remember what sport she said her daughter the was crew, involved. Crew. Was she was crew? the ergonomic rowers. Yeah. It was one of the, okay. So I actually rode crew in university and I sort of, I mean, it's not hard to tell when somebody gets to a campus, says they're part of a team and has absolutely no skill in this. This is why I'm surprised by the Yale coach for $400,000 bribe. When you not know that someone had zero ball handling skills, like I just like I cannot dribble. Like I just I'm trying they to don't think even about that. They don't even they don't, show, even, okay. have to, they don't but, even have to go. So like that's that's for me is like very bizarre. And is there a follow up on this? Like I mean, students and youth and athletes of NCAA sports, they're policed so heavily on what they can't. And this is something that Jason Gay talked about when I was on It's Only a Game last week. That the NCAA really, really polices student athletes. They're not allowed to make a dime outside. Like how come no one's policing these random kids? Like someone needs to be. I'm not saying that they should, people should they be don't make money. Well, yeah. I mean, the other thing, but she does, like she's technically getting Sephora money some other way. So she's just violated that also. Well, she's an influencer. She has like a million followers. I see it's, what you're saying. It, right? You see what I'm saying? So the, yeah. the, the, that's my point. The rules don't apply in this whole idea of entitlement. Like yeah. this kid, how can you not know that your parents are buying you into school? Like I filled out my own applications and wrote out, but my parents were very well aware of what was happening, obviously. And they knew what I was up to. 
because I showed them. I don't buy this thing that these young kids, white kids of privilege, didn't know. That's not good enough for me. And you know what? Wake up, kiddo. Grow up. I'm sorry. Your parents are shady. They're doing something to like propel you into a place where you don't deserve to be. You're going to have to pay the consequences. So I feel no sorriness. Yeah, they're kids and hopefully, but I'm sure they're, they can cry into their bags of money and like, you know, they can be fine and they'll have more opportunities in life than many other people. So, I mean, that's sort of the take I have on that. I'm still really boggled by a lot of this in terms of, <laughs> I mean, like Morgan Campbell, our friend said something, he tweeted something that I find hilarious. And it's literally going to be my, like my take. And it's like, he said, if I had quote, bribe an athletic director, unquote money, I would do something much more interesting than bribe an athletic director. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's very, and, very true. Yeah. Jess. Yeah, I just wanted to very quickly piggyback off of Shireen's point about black and brown athletes. And I just wanted to mention that one of the terrible myths about student athletes, um, and there was a great article, I mentioned it in my piece at The Atlantic, October 2018, college sports are affirmative action for white, rich white students, that there's actually that the student athlete isn't actually a white student, the majority of them. And we just have a very wrong picture about what the student athlete looks like, because we imagine it's football and basketball players. And so we imagine them as black. And this just then participates in the idea, the myth that black athletes are only on campus because they're good at athletics, that black students are only on campus because they're good at athletics. Like the levels here are really terrible. Yeah. Bren? Yeah. I mean, while most of the universities are nonprofit, technically, I mean, they're run by endowment and tuition and they have that category. I think what Shereen pointed to that's so important is about these informal ways in which they're very much acting um, as a business. And I do think that the people writing about this this week did a really good job. I mean, whether it's, you know, tweeting on social media or big articles like Jess and um, Lindsay did, but pointing out over and over again the ways in which these NCAA athletes have been policed. Like, what was it we did? I just wanted to ask all of you. We we did that. Who was the YouTube? There were twins. Oh, yeah, the Gonzalez twins. Yeah. It, it, right. Vegas, do, yeah. It, do you remember that story mm-hmm. in comparison with this Lofman daughter's situation? Like, like it just – and race is most definitely a factor – here <laughs> in who gets policed. So I just wanted to concur with Sharina and just bring that case up one more time. And I don't remember the specifics, but essentially they had to leave the team or leave their YouTube channel simply for for doing what was much, much less profitable than the Laughlin daughter. I can't remember her name. I'm sorry. And I also, I talked to Monique Billings on this show about having a YouTube account while she was at UCLA. Right. And she talked right. about how right. difficult that was to navigate. Yeah. Just time after time, I mean, you just see, like, there's so many people get paid so much money by these universities just to police NCAA compliance, right? (laughs) Like, just to basically make sure Mm -hmm. that these athletes aren't getting any money. But none of this is looking at the admissions people and the administrators and the athletic directors, right? There's no scrutiny. Because the truth is, this was all so blatant. There was one case of a tennis player in Georgetown, where they lied and said that she had, you know, a top 50 USTA junior ranking. That's really easy to Google. <laughs> like that's so 
Yeah. <laughs> That's yes. just right there. You know, like those aren't made up rankings or they're not supposed to be. You know, you can get the actual rankings. But the truth is there was just absolutely no scrutiny. And, you know, we talk about, you know, it's easy, I think, to dismiss a lot or dismiss is the wrong word, but to talk about these sports as if, you know, these aren't the sports that most people are focused on, which is true. But I think that also limits the fact that there were some really successful programs involved in this. Water polo at USC is the the coach was a 15-time national champion, (laughs) right? He was like running the most successful like water polo program around. And he directly was involved in this. And apparently he said that what he would do was this foundation, this fake foundation that was set up that these parents would pay the money to, and then the money would pay, you know, would write these donations to this, the school, or directly to the coaches. And so he used it as a way to subsidize the coaches on his staff. And they thought that this was like, they all knew about it. And this was just their way, like they let fake people onto their team so that they would get money to subsidize the staff for this nationally, the best program in the nation, essentially. So how is that fair? Right? Like, heaven forbid there be inequity in college sports like this. They're literally bribing people to stay at this program so they can remain, you know, nationally ranked. So it's just ridiculous. Although, I mean, one of my favorite parts, because there's obviously really, really serious stuff to talk about here. And I think we've touched on a lot of it from, you know, the race and class. And there's also the fact that a lot of these sports were women's sports. I mean, the USC women's athletics program was being used a lot throughout this as a way to kind of funnel money where nobody was paying close attention because who cares about the women? Um, But there's also just some stuff that we have to laugh at. Like in one case where they were trying to get a water polo, pretend that one of the players was a water polo player. (laughs) The the dad (laughs) literally set up his son to like take a photo, but the guy was literally standing in like three feet tall water. So even the recruiter was like, this isn't realistic because nobody could jump this high out of the water. Like you can't take a photo of him standing in the water with like two thirds of his body out because like, they don't even know what water polo <laughs> is. It's amazing. He ordered, it's amazing. like, Amazon stuff. <laughs> he ordered water polo stuff on Amazon. Yes. <laughs> okay, we're going to do one quick roundup here, Brent. <laughs> I just also want to mention the one, it is delightful reading in some sense, because if you ever felt class resentment that people were <laughs> really rich just beyond their smarts, <laughs> you're going to like feel really good after reading this, like, uh-huh. And in this case, the dad changed the height of his son because he was trying to say he played oh competitive God. basketball, but his son was 5'4". <laughs> <laughs> and so, which I mean, I know Shereen wants to say Spud McKenzie right now, but my point the Spud Web. Oh yeah, Spud, Spud Web. <laughs> but my oh, point no. that's but my point is like that's so funny. It's so it is funny. funny. Okay. Like it's just like wow. One of the things that I find really hysterical when we're talking about like sports, the head, the former coach of the Yale women's team that did take the $400,000 bribe was actually a pickleball champion. And I'm just adding this because it's a fun (laughs) fact I found out. And I find out about these sports and I'm like, wait, what's pickleball? And I had to Google it. But he used to schedule 
the training sessions and then like around pickleball championships that he participated <laughs> in. So like this is, the, and he probably made a substantial amount of money doing that. Why this is relevant. I just think it's a funny, weird fact that's embedded somehow into this whole cartel scandal, all of it. So pickleball players, I mean, I hope Wait, we don't get mail Shereen, from that question. Yeah. Uh, what, what is pickleball? <laughs> okay. Pick, okay. Now I don't feel bad. Pickleball is actually looks like tennis, but it's played with a flat paddle. So there's no strings and it's a wooden paddle. That's pickleball. It's so cornhole. It's, than- it's cornhole with a paddle kind of. It's cornhole with a paddle, much slower. But he was a very intense, competitive pickleball player. So if you ever meet a pickleball <laughs> player, be a little bit wary, flamethrowers. Oh, no. Wow. Okay. What I'm would you all do without burn it all down? <laughs> all right. This week, I had the honor of talking with Katie Sowers. Katie is in her third season in the NFL as an assistant coach. She's currently with the San Francisco 49ers as an offensive assistant. Katie played for eight years in the Women's Football Alliance, and she was a member of 2013 United States Women's National Football Team. In 2016, she started her NFL coaching career during the offseason and training camp with the Atlantic Falcons. And then she joined the San Francisco 49ers in 2017 on the Bill Walsh Minority Fellowship, where she started working with the team's wide receivers. I want to give a shout out. She's going to talk in this interview about her uh, mentor, Scott Pioli, and how much he did for her career. And we wanted to give a shout out to the Scott Pioli and Family Fund for Women Football Coaches and Scouts, which is a new fund that's done in conjunction with the Women's Sports Foundation. So this is a great way to help aspiring female football coaches and scouts pursue and advance careers in collegiate and professional football. All right. I am so excited to be here with Katie Sowers, the brilliant one. And Katie, okay, as a woman who works in sports, I refuse usually to start questions with or start interviews with how did you get into X sport? But with football, I feel like it's a little bit different because (laughs) women are not do not grow up uh, typically playing the sport and it's not kind of built into our college systems. So I'm going to give myself a pass here and kind of start there. Like, how did you get into playing, you know, American football? Because I know you were you were an athlete first before you became a coach. Well, I appreciate you having me on the show, and I don't mind this question at all. I actually am pretty used to answering (laughs) it, but growing up, I always really loved football. I I don't know what it was, but my twin sister and I would always play football in the backyard. I remember one of the best Christmas presents I ever received was back in the early 90s. My parents knew how much my sister and I loved football, and so they got us all these old used pads and helmets from the college my dad was coaching women's college basketball at and you know probably to them they were like well we're getting rid of these but to my twin sister and I it was like one of the best gifts you could possibly give somebody so I always kind of knew that football was a love and passion of mine but I didn't think that girls could play football so I even have some journal entries where I said well since I can't play football I guess we'll play basketball went on, played a number of different sports throughout college and came back and found a women's tackle football league after college. And that's kind of how it got me back on the football path. 
Yeah, no, no, you, I mean, you ended up playing for the U.S. national team in football, which I think a lot of people don't even know we have, but it's so important. But when did you, you know, there's a saying that you can't be what you can't see. And we certainly don't see many women on the NFL sidelines. So when did actually coaching in the NFL become a possibility for you? You know, it wasn't until I saw Becky Hammond coaching in the NBA, and that was when she first started. This was before there were any internships or anything going on with women in the NFL. And I remember, I, you know, at the time I was coaching youth football. I was trying to coach, you know, get into coaching at some level. Um, I was thinking basketball at that point because that was really what, you know, I had my mind set on since after, you know, moving on from football when I was young. But I saw her and I, I remember posting on my Instagram, NFL, I'm coming for you. And it was a picture of me coaching youth football at the time. And that was prior to really, that was the first moment where I kind of had an aha moment. And it's crazy with how passionate I was about football, how passionate I was about coaching, that it never registered to me that that could be a possibility for me. And seeing that really made it a possibility and I knew it was going to happen. That's incredible. So what year was that? And and how did you because I know you got eventually started with a it was a Scott Pioli fellowship, I believe, with the Atlantic Falcons. So what was the timeline from that Instagram post to getting that that coaching fellowship? So that Instagram post, I believe was in 2014, I want to say. So that should have been around the time Becky Hammond was yeah. kind of starting. I mean, that's the exactly NBA. the timeline. Yeah. Yeah, and so it wasn't until 2016 that I got the internship. So I, you know, I, I started coaching Scott's daughter around that time, coached her for a couple of years, and we just kept in contact. Scott ended up moving to Atlanta to be the assistant general manager for the Falcons. He was previously the former general manager for the Chiefs, and he just, we maintained this, uh, this he was my mentor, he was my friend, he was kind of the guy that, I went to to talk to 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 really get to know the NFL culture and you know it it just opportunities came up he helped me get into the east-west shrine game um, and really built helped to build my resume in the NFL and and gain experience before I was actually thrown into that internship in Atlanta. That's incredible I just love to hear that about that partnership because I I feel like oftentimes you hear like oh they helped me but it's nothing you don't hear about these long lasting connections that are really built. So when you said you coached his daughter was she playing in the little in the the football league youth football league that you were coaching? Well, I, I actually coached his daughter in basketball. So I was coaching oh. both. <laughs> wow. I was coaching in the fall. Yeah, I was coaching youth in the fall and then it was kind of that overlap where then basketball started. So I would go from coaching, it was, I, we actually did have a female on our team, but it was mainly eighth grade boys, you know, coaching football to fifth grade girls basketball, which was pretty fun. But I, I you know, I love, I enjoyed everything. I enjoyed everybody that I've met and it's just crazy being, you know, the things that happen and the, the people that you'll meet and you never know when that, that opportunity is going to come up where, you know, you're, you're, I, I, the whole time I thought I was coaching fifth grade basketball and you know I was I thought I was I was working towards a certain goal but little did I know that that experience was going to lead me to where I am today. Wow that is remarkable. What was the first moment on the sidelines of an NFL game? What what are your first memories from that moment and how did you feel? 
you know, it, I remember, I actually, I remember walking out, it would have been at the Georgia Dome when I really truly had my first experience. And I remember walking out and it was almost a surreal moment where everything that I had dreamed about when I was little and I thought I never would get to achieve, you know, the, the small things like looking around and seeing all these helmets that matched and being on a, what I used to call in a journal, a real football team. You know, I, I got to experience that uh, a little bit while I played in the women's league. We, you know, they don't offer the things that they offer and the experiences are not the same because the game is just not as developed and hopefully it'll get there. But the experience I had in that first NFL game was truly amazing. And I remember just thinking I was doing it for that little girl back then. And I was pretty excited to do that. That's really remarkable. Early on when you were with San Francisco, I think it was a couple of years ago, you opened up about your sexuality, about being gay. Why was that important for you? Because you can think, you know, you were already breaking so many barriers as a woman, might not want to draw a lot of attention to yourself. But why was it important for you to come out and, and make that statement and be true about who you were? You know, it's never about coming out and making a statement. I It actually just happened. I didn't even know the story was going to get as big as it did. It was just one of those things, is, you know, I was dating somebody at the time. It's okay if we mention who you're dating. You know, I, I said, that's fine. I, I've been out for a really long time, so I didn't see why I wouldn't. I just think, you know, I, I never wanted to hide that because the more authentic we are, the more real we are, First of all, the better workers we are, the happier we are, but the more, the better coaches we are. I mean, coaching is all about getting buy-in uh, and having people trust you and, and trust who you are. And if they don't know who you are, then how can you really get that buy-in from anybody? So I, I just think being authentic is the best way to go. And that's what I did. What is the reception in the locker room, Ben? There's always, I'm a, look, I'm a huge football fan. Uh, you know, grew up loving the Carolina Panthers, still do. And, you know, I'm always told even that, you know, football isn't a friendly place for women and that there's a lot of homophobia in the sport. What have you experienced actually being there? I have not received any type of homophobia or anything like that. I've had players, I've gone out of their way to come into my office and, and tell me how, how important it is that, you know, that article came out, how cool it is. People have talked about their siblings being gay. I've had coaches talk to me about, you know, people in their family that are gay and just how important that is. So it was a really, really good reception. I love it. That's so good to hear. It's just, I, it's really heartwarming, especially like that they've gone out of their way to really make sure that you know that you're accepted and a part of this community. So what is the biggest thing you've learned as a coach these past few years? What's been, where's your biggest growth come from? You know, I think a lot of it is just the internal desire to get better. I think in, especially in the position that I'm in, we can often make excuses. Oh, they don't, you know, they don't want me to do this because I'm a woman. Oh, I'm not getting opportunities. Oh, like they haven't come across this obstacle having a woman. The locker rooms are, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. But there's a point where you have to stop making excuses and just get better. I remember I used to tell my dad, my dad when my dad was, you know, he's a retired coach and I used to come home when I was young and say, I feel so out of shape. The coaches aren't running us enough. And he would just look at me with no pity and just say, can you run on your own? And I, I would say, well, yeah. And he said, so I don't want to hear you complain about it. 
And that's kind of the mindset, you, you know, we, we live our whole life and we expect people to train us or, you know, but we are in charge of what we can control. And so that's the main thing that I've learned is when it comes to learning this game, yeah, I, I've, I don't have the experience in terms of like, I didn't get to watch film in college. I didn't get, I don't have the network that a lot of people do, but that's no excuse. And I'm, I'm just going to work even harder. I think, you know, you brought up the locker rooms and, you know, I'm a big, I've written in tennis a lot. And, you know, when Andy Murray had a female coach, he was like, everyone keeps asking me about the locker rooms, but it's no big deal. We just meet outside the locker rooms, you know, and we just meet in the hallway. But of course, football is, it seems like a lot more revolves around the locker rooms. And since the whole team's in there, has that been a barrier or has that been pretty easy to work around? For me, it's been very easy. I mean, there's nothing to work around. And I don't want to say it's because of my sexuality, because I don't think it is at all. I think the locker room is a place for players. It's a safe place for players. And I think whether you're a man or you're a woman, it's not a place that anyone who is not a player should really truly be hanging out. We are in there to do what we need to do, and we get out. And I think that's the main thing. And sometimes that gets overlooked and you start to question, well, why can't a woman be in there? Do you think, is it not safe for her? Is it uncomfortable for other people? I mean, the bottom line is that's a safe place for players. And it doesn't matter what gender you are. Um, we know our role and we know where we're supposed to be. It's a workplace at the end of the day, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So what is your career trajectory now? What are your goals going forward? My goals are really just to continue to grow as a coach, um, to create value in, in whatever position I'm in. I would love to be a head coach someday. I know that that's, that's some time down the road, but you know, I'm just going to take it day by day and continue to grow. It's so exciting. Okay, final question. And this is a little bit embarrassing. But I so I follow you on Instagram, because I love all the photos you post. And you know how on Instagram, it'll show you like if someone you followed liked something else, you know? Yeah. So that's how yeah. I found out that you two watch The Bachelor. So oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> As do I. So I have to ask you, what are your thoughts on the finale? last night? Oh, man. So it's funny because I watch two I don't watch a lot of TV I never have time but I watch two things I watch The Bachelor and I watch NFL Network oh, love. so so it's quite the quite the tandem duo right there but I you know I was in love with Cassie I think I was in love with her from the very first moment <laughs> that I saw her gorgeous oh my gosh I think I even loved her before Colton did so I was pretty upset to see the ending to be honest, because I was I was kind of hoping she would be single, but that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, you know, I'm not. I don't know if I totally buy her full turn yet, but maybe that's just the cynic in me. We'll see. We'll see how it develops. Or positive thinking for me. You never or, know. Or that you know, I'm just trying to make make things work out for you. Is what's happening. I wish I wish them the best, but if it doesn't. You know, I'm always here. So. <laughs> Slide into those DMs, as they say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Katie, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. You are uh, an inspiration to all of us, and I uh, can't thank wait to follow you so your much. career. I appreciate it. All right. We haven't solved racism in sports yet. And this week, that was Jess. Can you uh, get us started here? 
Yeah. So early last week, the Oklahoma Thunder superstar, Russell Westbrook, he had words in Salt Lake City with a Utah Jazz fan. The fan who it turns out loves to post all kinds of racist things on social media, especially about Westbrook, made racist and according to Westbrook, quote, completely disrespectful remarks to him, including telling Westbrook to, quote, get down on your knees like you're used to. So then someone caught Westbrook his response to this guy on camera, Westbrook was mad and basically said, quote, I promise you I'll fuck you up. You and your wife, I'll fuck you up. The video, of course, did not have the white man's words in it, just Westbrook's response. I, I might be wrong about this because I'm not on social media a lot these days, but I feel like initially people were sort of tis tis tisking at Russell Russ Westbrook. But then people on Twitter found this racist man's racist <laughs> Twitter account and Westbrook's teammates, Patrick Patterson and Raymond Felton, confirmed Westbrook's account of the fans' behavior. And then Utah Jazz players also chimed in. Thabo Cephalosha said that he stood with Westbrook 100%. Quote, fans like Shane, Ke Shane Keisel, the racist fan, who use that platform to spur their hateful and racist views need to be held accountable. Donovan Mitchell also backed Westbrook and said that while he loves jazz fans, quote, this is not the first time something like this has happened in our arena. Okay, so the racist fan has been permanently banned from jazz games. The NBA also, though, fined Westbrook $25,000 for, quote, directing profanity and threatening language toward the fans. The Utah jazz owner, Gail Miller, an old white lady, to my surprise, went on court on Thursday to address the incident directly and to the fans of the team. But in her speech about everyone deserving dignity and respect, she couldn't help but say, quote, this should never happen. We are not a racist community. Okay. So the following day, Friday, the Jazz announced that banning a fan, uh, that they were going to ban a fan who in April 2018, during the first round of the playoffs last year, kept calling Westbrook boy during warmups. April 2018, Westbrook told him to stop. The man kept going. After that game in 2018, Westbrook said, quote, I don't confront fans. Fans confront me. Here in Utah, man, a lot of disrespectful, vulgar things are said to the players here with these fans. It's truly disrespectful. They talk about your families, your kids. It's just a disrespect to the game. I think that it's something that needs to be brought up. I'm tired of just going out and playing and letting fans say what the hell they want to say. It took almost a year and another incident of a racist jazz fan directing his comments at Westbrook for the organization to do anything about that guy. So, okay. Of course, this is deeper than two racist fans, which we, we are going to get into. We've talked about racism in sports a lot on the show. I think the delay in the jazz punishing that fan from 2018 is the most interesting detail. That action only occurs when there's bad PR and that it takes a particular charged form of it. On some level, I don't know how you guys feel at this point. Like on some level, it feels like there's nothing new to say, but also that we just have to keep saying stuff every time it happens because you never actually know which racist incident is going to like affect change here. What do you guys think about this? What are you thinking after everything that went down this week? Yeah, I felt that the conversation steered in an actually productive way this time, which is not always. And of course, with the attention span that we have these days, there is no promise that this is going to continue. But it, it, it was nice to see ownership of some teams actually for once taking the side of the players. And I think what you forget is that these players play in so many 
they're just they're subjected to so much abuse. And for the black players, there's so much racial abuse that is just thrown away casually. Um, I mean, none of it is casual, of course, but you, hopefully you guys know what I mean there because I'm not saying my words properly, which is great for a podcast. But it just seems that what we are seeing time and time again is people making excuses for these abusive fans, people saying that players make all this money and should just let it roll off their backs. And people saying that, you know, this is just kind of part of it. This abuse is just kind of part of it. But luck it now it, this week, it felt like there was a tiny turn to saying, no, this should absolutely not be part of it. <laughs> there should, these fans should not have to be subjected to racial abuse period from anyone it doesn't matter if they're a paying ticket holder it does not matter it does not matter how much money they make the racism still should be banned and so i was at least partially heartened that we started seeing that although you know it's so little and it's so late shireen yeah i think that one of the things that's about this is the culture of fandom and what that looks like. And you can really get irritated with the player. Like I will get really frustrated with Gerard Piquet. Like I get frustrated with him all the time. He's a white man. So obviously, and that idea of saying something, you know, racist or using slurs that are homophobic or anything doesn't even, it doesn't enter my mind. But the thing is, is that people will argue, oh, it's just banter. I'm just frustrated. I'm caught up into the passion of the game. You can really get rid of horrifically ableist homophobic racist language it's not that difficult like you can get frustrated with a player and be like that play was crap or that was not like there's many ways colorfully for me to express my frustration with all kinds of athletes that don't involve slurs that don't involve offensive really really horrible language and it's also about what's permitted like first like for example that we bring up we have brought up before is Raheem Sterling now it's not only fan culture it's media that presents this player and he said something really interesting he came out with an Instagram post a couple uh, months ago now and he's been fairly quiet about it until this Instagram post and he talked about he just sort of had enough and felt his responsibility. For those that don't know, Raheem Sterling is a player from Manchester City. He's also an English national. He's originally from Jamaica. His family moved to England when he was two. And he has literally, if he buys something that's like, he comes walking out of a shop, the Daily Mail will like, oh, look at him. He's blingy. Like they'll put everything he does in a sense of with those tropes of what black athletes do. But like, then you've got, you know, he who shall not be named with uh, like the alleged rapist with all of his cars and his everything. But it's always perceived as, oh, look how hardworking he is. So the narrative used to describe Sterling is really, really stereotypically offensive. And he's, he grew up absolutely working class. And then he says it's the other side that people are like, oh, he grew up in a rough neighborhood. He's like, I didn't. I grew up close enough to be able to see Wembley. He grew up in an area of London called Wembley and he could see the stadium. So he's like, no, my mother worked really, really hard, but we had what we needed. Don't make me seem like 
what I'm not for the other extreme. So it's almost like the honesty with which we know about the athletes. And then the fans interpret that as they wish. Like we've seen banana throwing at players on the field. Like Boateng, I remember walked off of Serie A a couple of years ago. Now I think it was Brent that he actually walked off the pitch and he was just like, I'm not doing this anymore. And it's really, really, it's really, really horrible. We saw a player in the Australian league who was also being hit with Islamophobic uh, like abuse. We see it all the time. We see how, you know, there's media trips about Serena very recently, a cartoon about her. And this is this is something that when media presents, like I'm always here for to blame media, how it's perceived and, and absorbed by fans. So the whole thing is a system. It's like propelled. And it, it's it's really, really dangerous. I am the belief that there's some things that warrant permanent, like forever banning of games and matches and, and leagues. Like if you are caught abusing a player or even other fans in such way, you're done. You have to pay that price and don't give a post-apology, a post-facto apology of, oh, it's not representative of who I am. That's not good enough. What you say is actually who you are. So own it and deal with the consequences. Like we talked about um, Diaby, the uh, minor uh, Quebec Hockey League player, and how when he was racially abused by fans, not only were the fans not ejected they were just told to move to a different part of the arena like that's what's secure so it's also like train your staff to deal with it immediately effectively and in an impactful way because this type of stuff not only just you just think about the severity of it the athletes are there to compete they're literally in competition using their bodies using their minds and then this stuff is a completely different form of labor being abused racially and i can say this from experience is so mentally and physically draining. So to do that and add that on top is unfair. It's completely unfair and unacceptable. Brenda? Yeah, I just wanted to say that part of our our live recording in the events last week, we talked with Michael Bennett, who wrote this book, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. And one of the things that he was talking about was this precisely, feeling dehumanized and feeling that fans, and he actually pointed to fantasy football as being one of the things that led fans to feeling like they owned his body. And he said, you know, I can't stand fantasy football because it leads fans to to really feel as though they have ownership over me. And, um, and then he pointed out the fact that, you know, the NFL is one of these few places where you have to call your boss your owner. And so I really think the shift that's happening in terms of looking at athletes as laborers is really important to thinking about racism on your job. You know, Shereen just pointed that out. And and, and it, it's really important, I think, to change the, the frame of looking at athletes altogether and thinking of them as laborers, whether it's artistic or physical or whatever you want to, however you want to sort of nuance that. Because I think clubs do lead the media, around by the nose a lot of times in terms of providing them access or not. So I think media, yes. But I also think these are narratives produced by owners. Well, I hate saying that, the owners of teams. Yeah, absolutely. That's Michael Bennett's talk was all I've been thinking about throughout all of this. of just like wanting to be seen as human and the fact that this is all part of this dehumanization that that is a part of this. Jess? Yeah, so I just wanted to sort of tie all this together. There was a beautiful cover story about Naomi Osaka for ESPN Magazine written by the lovely Soraya McDonald. I highly recommend it. There's this 
part in the middle where McDonald asks Osaka about Serena and the U.S. Open final. And she does a really great job of laying out, like, you know, her own trepidation was sort of asking about this, like, what's going to happen when I ask? And IMG rep actually steps in and tries to stop this interview or stop them from this questioning around the U.S. Open final. And Osaka says no, like, and she decides to push on and she wants to talk about it. And she says beautiful words about being a black woman playing against Serena, beating Serena, and especially in the charged U.S. Open final. Uh, And so Osaka says to McDonald, quote, if I were to put it bluntly, I know that there's a lot of people that don't like Serena. And I feel like they're just looking for someone to sort of jump on to be against her. And I feel like they found that in me. Of course, I don't really like that. I want people to go with me for the right reasons. If I'm being blunt, I feel like that's happened a lot, like after the U.S. Open, right? So this is a lot about fans and like what they want to see. You know, tennis has lots of its own issues around this stuff. Um, But I do think it matters that Osaka was sitting across from Soraya McDonald, a black woman, and doing this interview. I think the fact that Osaka wanted to press on and talk to her was probably because she felt some sort of kinship. I'm putting, you know, I don't know this. But the way McDonald writes it is that Osaka went around the IMG rep to answer this question. She did it incredibly thoughtfully, slowly, deliberately. She cries, but she doesn't break eye contact with McDonald as she's answering this question. And so the fact that we get these powerful words from this young Black woman who is seen up close and personal in the last year, the way that racism works in her sport, and that she's saying it to McDonald, I think really shows that the importance of media and the impact that this racism has within sport. Yeah, and just as somebody who can cement that, it is a lot easier to talk about racism with people of color. <laughs> so I'm just going to add that known fact in there, that that is a reality of the situation. I love those points, Jess. They're so important to keep, even talking about racism in media is work, because it's something that privileged white athletes just do not have to do. All right, it is time to, after all that deep discussion, throw some things onto the burn pile. Jess, can you get us started? Yeah, I really can. <laughs> uh, so Bradley <laughs> Bradley University is a small private school in Peoria, Illinois. They have, a, But they do have a D1 basketball team. Um, it's been to the big dance about 10 times in the last 70 years, including I think it was 2006. They did a run that took them to the Sweet 16. And they're, and they're back in it this year. They won the Missouri Valley Tournament. Um, but that's not actually why they're in the national news. No, they're in the news because late last week, the school wanted to ban Peoria Journal Star's longtime beat reporter Dave Reynolds from a media event about the team's appearance in the NCAA tournament. I should be clear, when I say long time, I mean 29 years Reynolds has covered this team. So this is how Reynolds described what went down between him and the assistant director of athletic communications, Jason Venisky. Quote, he pulled me aside and said their policy of me not given extra coverage and opportunity was still in place and I was not allowed to do any interviews. I told him the newspaper received the invitation. He said that was directed to your boss, not to you. I said he doesn't cover the team. I have for 29 years. He responded by saying you don't promote the Bradley brand. And basically, we don't want you here. I said, Jason, that's not my job to to promote the Bradley brand. You know that. He said, that's what we decided. I said, who's we? He said, Bradley University. I said, you realize how petty that is, Jason. 
what? <laughs> this is amazing. Bradley head coach Brian Wardle told Reynolds that Reynolds focuses too much on the negative and that they've told him three times before to lay off on the negative. Then Wardle, according to Reynolds, basically told him they don't want that negative energy around their program. So this is amazing. This is similar to the college admission scandal in that there's always this something, this like magical thing when these in these moments where what we know to be true is just made like really super clear, <laughs> like everything is pulled away. Journalists are not public relations flacks. They aren't supposed to be homers. They don't work for the schools or a team. Their job is not only to talk about an organization through rose colored glasses. That Bradley basketball thinks that they can and should banish a journalist for doing his job makes me really wonder what the hell is going on yes. inside that program. <laughs> Of course, Bradley University has apologized and Reynolds had his access restored. All that negative attention they were hoping to avoid by banning him in the first place came at them like a tidal wave, which apparently their PR flags didn't predict. I hope Reynolds (laughs) uses his restored access to ask very tough questions to and about the men who sought to keep him far away from them. So I want to burn the idea that journalists exist to do the work of assistant directors of athletic communications. Burn. 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 Bren, this week I'm burning the coverage surrounding uh, Juventus star Cristiano Ronaldo. I know you'll all be shocked. (laughs) Really. (laughs) Um, But this week, Sam Borden wrote a really good piece for ESPN that details the stalling of Catherine Mayorga's rape case against Ronaldo. Mayorga reported that Ronaldo raped her in 2009 to the police and what we've learned in the last month since the case has been reopened is that the settlement terms were perhaps not fully complied with. And in addition to that, Mayorga has reported intimidation um, leading up to signing the agreement and after. So there's some new details that have come up since the announcement that the police investigation was reopened five months ago. There have been no updates on how things are proceeding But since Ronaldo scored a hat trick for Juventus against Atletico Madrid to move his team forward in the Champions League last week, there have been dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of articles that praise his football playing, which no doubt is good. And I would just like to say they are unnecessarily superfluous and lack reflection. I find it just amazing. I mean, there's, there's ways to talk about that hat trick without talking about his reputation and his family but Juventus just keeps putting out the PR Nike keeps putting out the PR and every media outlet's just sucking it up even the usually amazing Enia Luco wrote a glowing piece about the women's side all getting together to watch him that appeared far more as a Bradley PR piece than journalism if you can't write critically about him don't write at all So I would like to burn the fact that Catherine Mayorga is somewhere having to read this person's plastered, plastered news. And again, I'm not talking about his football stuff. I'm talking about the way in which they extract things about his personality and his family from what he does on the pitch uncritically. So I'd like to burn that uncritical puff stuff. Burn. Burn. All right. This week, I am sad to put... Martina Navratilova back on the burn pile, but I just cannot stomach the fact that she is continuing with her ignorant and dangerous comments about 
female trans athletes. This week, the ACLU sent out an article. It said the arguments against trans women participating in sports are based in the same stereotypes that are used to keep cis women off the playing field. Sex discrimination in sports is wrong, period. The ACLU's piece echoed a lot of the points that the remarkable Katie Barnes made on this podcast a couple of weeks ago with our own Jess Luther. If you haven't listened to that one, please go back to that podcast where they really dive deep into this issue and talk about why why Martina's initial comments against trans athletes were so harmful. But what really bothered me this week was the fact that Martina seems to have not learned anything at all. She responded to this ACLU argument on her saying, I love you, ACLU, but you are wrong on this. Unless you want to completely remake what women's sports means, there can be no blanket inclusion rule. There is nothing stereotypical about this. It's about fairness and it's about science. Thank you. On to the burn pile with that bullshit. This is not about fairness for women athletes. It's not about science. The ACLU was not saying that the IOC and the NCAA should completely get away with their guidelines for trans athletes, which actually most trans activists agree are appropriate. Um, so it was not arguing for blanket inclusion in that way. It was talking about how on the youth level, there needs to be inclusion, that how we talk about this matters and how we need to make this about human rights and not about cis women's rights. So Martina, I hope that one day you will listen and that you will learn about this. But until then, you're remaining on the burn. Burn. Shireen? This week is, and this weekend particularly, is St. Patrick's Day. So happy St. Patty's Day to those who observe, Aaron Gobra, etc. But what I am going to put on the burn pile metaphorically is Conor McGregor. Now, I have a deep respect for Irish folks. I really do. The resistance, um, I went to an Irish Catholic high school, and I have love for those people. I'm really, you know, I just really feel that it's important to recognize that as well. However, please come and collect Conor McGregor, known racist (laughs) and Islamophobe, who was touted by the Boston Bruins in their locker room. Now, this is only days after Conor McGregor was arrested in Miami for criminal misbehavior and assault because a fan wanted to take a photo with him and he slapped the phone out of the fan's hand and then stomped on it. You know, like there's a lot to say about that, like taking photos with someone who doesn't want that. I totally get it. But getting slapped by Conor McGregor isn't like getting slapped by like, I don't know, (laughs) somebody who's not an MMA fighter. So just days after this, he makes an appearance to do the puck drop at the Boston Bruins game. So I get that it's St. Patrick's Day. I get that he's Irish, but I also get that he's horribly xenophobic and racist in this commentary. He's gross. Like Again, coming back, we talked about it this episode, just vernacular around it. It's not competition. It's not just like small little jabs. It's very offensive. And the fact that the NHL, just days after this, days after 
this massive event in the world that has shaken the Muslim community props up this man who is seriously is on record for making very offensive Islamophobic comments can be there to sort of whitewash it all away and just be like, oh, I'm Irish. And um, so let's just forget about everything I've ever done. That's bad. I don't have big expectations of the Boston Bruins in this regard. I really don't. We know that city's racist history. However, this whole thing made me nauseous. And it was just gross to me. And also his performative in the locker room of when I say Boston, you say strong, like that whole narrative, particularly coming from someone like Conor McGregor, that has that specific history of hatred. I don't want any of it. Like I've become more receptive to New England sports, particularly because Michael Bennett has been traded to the Patriots. So I'm going to be open-minded a little more, but I'm sorry, Bruins, you failed again. So I want to put all of that on the bird pile. After that burn pile extraordinaire, it is time to lift lift up some badass women of the week. Going to start with karate superstar Nargis Hazara for winning Pakistan's Sportswoman of the Year Award. We want to give a shout out to the NWHL finalist. Uh, the Isabel Cup final game will be played today, so we don't know the winner yet. It's going to be played between the Buffalo Buttes and the Minnesota Whitecaps. It will be live streamed on Twitter. We can't wait to watch that. So good luck to both of the teams. We want to shout out the Orlando Prides, Ashlyn Harris and Allie Krieger, who announced their engagement this week. Congratulations. Ozzy Fudd, who became the first sophomore to win Gatorade National Girls Basketball Player of the Year Award since its inception in 1985. Iowa's Megan Gustafson, ESPNW's unanimous selection as the National Player of the Year. And Stanford recruit Haley Jones, who was named the 2019 Naismith Girls High School Player of the Year. It is basketball season, friends. Uh, Michaela Schifrin, who finished the slalom season in regal fashions with victory in Andorra. The 24-year-old clinched her 16th win of a record-breaking season. England Roses women's rugby team have won the Grand Slam and beat Scotland by 80 to nothing which sounds like a whole lot to me. <laughs> I don't know much about rugby, but goodness, <laughs> that sounds like oh, a beat down. Melissa Burgess for winning the Ontario Junior Hockey League Volunteer of the Year Award. Amanda DeCanick has been hired as a full-time assistant athletic trainer for the Minnesota Vikings. There are now six full-time female athletic trainers in the NFL. I love hearing that. BBC's Match of the Day presenter and former England national Alex Scott, who won the Breakthrough Award for her contributions to football journalism by the Broadcasting Press Guild in the U.S. U.K. One more basketball, Erica Gwumake, the first CUSA WBB Player of the Year, and her team, Rice University Owls, for their championship win. We will see them in the NCAA tournament. And look, the Agumake sisters dynasty just continues. So we love that. <laughs> and okay, drum roll, please. Oh gosh, that makes me miss the live show even more. And I missed it. Where's the audience? Yeah, <laughs> missing the live audience. Our badass women of the week this week goes to the Argentine women's soccer players who forced the National Federation to professionalize their league for the first time. 
We can look for a new cup competition and training facilities. 16 of the Argentine clubs will have two-month deadline to give at least eight players pro contracts funded by the Federation. This is a huge step forward, and it is all due to their fight. So congratulations. Okay. All right. Now let's go to what's good this week. We, we have, we're going to have to come up with something new now that the live show is in our past. Shireen, you want to get us started? Sure, thanks. I What's good is wearing pajamas again while we're recording because last week was the first time I wasn't wearing pajamas as we did a live <laughs> show. So yay for pajamas. I just It's been a really difficult um, end of the week. And I'm really, really grateful for family and chosen family. I've been doing a lot of self-care, doing a lot of grieving and mourning and healing. And so Hakka videos from New Zealand, particularly tributes to Muslim communities there, have been really, really, really beautiful. My mother got me some swag, which was really nice. And it actually says Shiro on it, S-H-E hyphen R-O. And a lot of people might not know this, but that's my family nickname. It's short for Shirin, Shiro. That's what everyone calls me. So it's kind of fun to be called a Shiro. So my mom got me a mug, and that was really fun. And lastly, New Zealander soccer player Costa Barbarose uh, scored this morning in a match, and he bent down in a prostration as a gesture of solidarity and respect to the Muslim community where he's from in New Zealand. So love to unthanks to all the Kiwis and everybody around the world. It's it's just been somebody I'm watching that and that's really good because I'm holding really hard on to things that are really good. We love you, Shireen. Jess. Uh yeah, I learned to make croissants this week. I took a class. <gasps> I saw that. <laughs> it, they were really good. And it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. So I'm hoping this week that I'll have time to practice at home. We'll see how it goes. If nothing else, you just end up with like a lot of buttery, flowery things. We just finished South by Southwest here in Austin and I actually didn't really go to it at all. Um, I only went to one single thing and that was to see my friend. I've mentioned him on the show before. His name is Mobley. He's a musician. I think he's wonderful. And I got to see him in the middle of the week and that was really a wonderful highlight for me. He is just so I love his music in general, but I just think he's a stellar live performer. It was really fun to see Mobley this week. Bren? So it's spring break. So that's <gasps> really nice because my students really needed. They were no offense students if you ever listen, but they were looking they were looking pretty <laughs> frazzled. Like they needed a break. And if they're looking frazzled, I'm probably looking twice as frazzled. But I am going to go to Cornell this week to give a talk invited by Professor Glickman, Larry Glickman, who's a fabulous historian. If you don't follow him on Twitter, he's really like in these days, so important of a voice. So I'm going to go there and I'm really excited. I've never been to Cornell and it looks pretty. And the other thing that's good is that this week there was one day that was over 50 degrees. Yeah. And that was amazing. So I got to run outside and that was exciting. So yeah, good week. That's incredible. I have to be on brand and say that what's good for me is that it's March <laughs> madness time. <laughs> so I'm going to try and get a hot take out with some uh, about the NCAA women's tournament bracket, which will be, be released Monday. I'm going to be at Maryland with that team while that goes out. I have some 
a couple freelance pieces coming out this week that I'm excited about that are about uh, the Maryland women's team. I have a huge feature that God willing at Think Progress is going to come out this week. So about women in coaching and I'm just, uh, you know, this is the time where, you know, I spent my entire Saturday, you know, working for about 14 hours straight and didn't mind one bit because I'm so excited about the stuff I'm working on. And it's just, it's a magical time of year for this basketball fan. (laughs) So that's what's good for me. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. We, of course, want to thank our Patreons and remind you that if you go to patreon.com slash burn it all down and you pledge as little as $2 a month to support our show, that is how we keep this podcast coming to you on a weekly basis. We have not missed a week. We will not miss a week. (laughs) We are on fire, but it is all thanks to you. We also want to say we've gotten a lot of people reaching out to us, which has been very flattering and exciting about possibly seeing if, you know, we could come to their universities and do a live show. Please have whoever is in charge of organizing such a thing reach out to us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com because look, we will travel. For burn it all down, and you know, maybe they can bribe an athletic director. You, to you have know what? Us this is true. <laughs> if anyone... <laughs> Look, if you need me to pretend to be a crew play a crew person <laughs> to be on your campus for a little bit, so I can be around my co-host, I, you know, I, I bet I can be photoshopped as a mean, you know, like water polo. No, we can be champion pickleballers. Yeah, That's there what we can be. <laughs> Oh, Lordy. Okay. (laughs) This has gotten off the rails, but I just want to say, please reach out to us if you think that your university might have a little bit of money that instead of going to some horrible people that they want to bring to campus could instead come to us (laughs) and bring us to campus so we can come see, talk to you live. And yeah, I think that's all. I think I've gotten completely off track now. Follow us at Burn It Down Pod on Twitter, at Burn It All Down on Facebook and Instagram. Burn it all down pod at gmail.com, burn it all down pod.com on the web. And I believe I butchered all of that, but that's okay. If you're still listening this late in the show, I think you know how to find us. <laughs> okay. Thank you all so much. <laughs> Have a good day. And I'm sorry.